Hey friends, when can wrestling with God be a good thing? You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 294, Jennifer Rosner and Finding Messiah. Halfway there. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. And I'm so glad you found the show, you've downloaded, and I uh, hope you're having a great, just a great year so far. I can't believe already, probably by the time you hear this, we'll be almost halfway through uh, 2022. That's wild. So hope you're doing well. Uh, today we have a really, uh, I'm going to enjoy this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. I know it's going to encourage you and I hope it challenges you a little bit too. Our guest, she is an affiliate assistant professor of systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary and the author of a new book. This is why I wanted to talk to her. It's called Finding Messiah, A Journey into the Jewishness of the Gospel. That's interesting, right? Our guest is Jennifer Rosner. Jennifer, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I'm so glad to have you. Yeah, that your book sounds really interesting and I know we'll get into it, but uh that's that's something we don't talk about very much, is it? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 part of why I wrote the book is because I feel like there is too often a divide between Judaism and Christianity, and we see them as entirely separate things for all kinds of very legitimate historical reasons. Um, and yet, I would like to argue that in order to truly understand Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually have to understand something about Judaism. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'll never forget uh, my first. I'm. I grew up in a very place where we never thought about that, right? And then mm. my first, we moved to kind of Chicago, where there was a much larger, uh, certainly Christian, Jewish presence, right? And so we did. We do things like seder's, and they'd kind of show us through some of that. Those uh, the bitter herbs, though. That's that's a toughie. <laughs> yeah, that's it's supposed toughie. to be. That's the point. <laughs> I know. All right, do you want to hear a story about how that ha- what happened? Uh-huh. We, had, we had an organist at our church who was, uh, you know, I don't know how old she was. She was older than me. I was in my 20s, so everybody seemed old at that point. But uh, she she was from Sweden, and so it got to that point. We're sitting next to her at the Seder, and she says, I get I get the like, little dab of the horseradish, right, you know, mm-hmm. on, on a cracker. I'm like, okay, good. And she's she's used to this stuff, so she like, grabs this big scoop. She says, come on, be a man. And I was in my 20s, so I'm like, I'm not going to let that happen, so... Got a big, I was, it was, it was this, like, I could not describe, uh-huh. I could only describe it as 400 years of slavery in my mouth. It was exactly, awful. Exactly. Right. That's the point. That's in my husband's family. There's like a competition among the brothers of like who can eat the most and like oh have goodness. the most tears and like the, yes. you know, yeah, that's, it's a competition for them. So, so yes, <laughs> it's 400 years of slavery in your mouth. That's exactly what it's supposed to be. Yes. Okay. Which I like. So I love the embodiment of that, right. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of an interesting Mm-hmm. practice. I don't think we, at least in my tradition where I grew up, mm-hmm. we don't do that well very, mm-hmm. very often. So mm-hmm. interesting. Okay. Well, maybe that's a little preview of kind of where we're going to, we're going to go. Maybe we'll talk about that some more, but uh, here, I really want to hear your story because I want to mm-hmm. hear kind of nobody writes a book about this without having a reason to right, or without mm-hmm. having some, some part of your story that leads you there. So let's talk about that. Where are you from? I am from Lake Tahoe, California, Northern California. 
Um, and I grew up in a Jewish family, so fairly strong sense of Jewish identity without much Jewish community to speak of. Um, and I, uh, you know, I could go back farther to my parents. My dad uh, was raised in the Jewish community in Los Angeles and kind of skeptical of organized religion, uh, but, but a deeply seated belief in God that he developed through some experiences in his late teenage years. My mom was kind of the opposite. She was very invested in the Jewish community and Jewish camp counselor and all those things, but she was actually agnostic until well into her marriage, which seems kind of like a contradiction to many Christians, but in Judaism, it's also a cultural and ethnic identification. So it doesn't always go hand in hand with a deep faith in God, as, as I think most people would say Christian faith does. Um, and so I was kind of raised with my mom who was perpetuating Jewish traditions in our home and my dad who was trying to instill in my brother and I a deep sense of sort of connection to God, although it was a bit non-contextual at the time. So I go off to college to a large public state school in California, and all of my friends sort of just so happen to be Christians. Um, and I begin to sort of hear the claims of Jesus for the first time from my Christian friends. And, and, and honestly, it's kind of funny to look back, but really just because I didn't like being the only kid in my very Christian dorm at this like totally public state school, not a Christian school. I didn't like being the only kid in the dorms on a Sunday morning. So I started going to church with my roommate who was a Christian. Eventually I started going to campus crusade meetings, which I think we're supposed to now call crew. Yep. Um, and it just, so, so my college years were a time of um, sitting with tensions that I began to feel in terms of my own uh, questions, spiritual and religious questions, and learning about the person of Jesus. Um, and so it was my last year in college that I, I, I just sort of came to a point, and, and again, it's a longer story, but I found the claims of Jesus to be um, undeniably compelling, and I mm. became a follower of him. And at that point, I had all this Christian community, and I had no idea what to do with my Jewishness. Like, I didn't know about Messianic Judaism. I didn't yeah. know about Jews for Jesus. Like, I knew nothing about how to put together these two parts of myself. But I knew I was hooked. I knew I was fascinated by religion and theology um, and sort of the issues at play in, in those conversations. And so I was a political science major. As an undergrad, I scrapped my plans to go to law school. And I went instead to divinity school ah. and I was just like a kid in a candy shop in my MDiv program, which was at Yale divinity school, just like eating up like biblical languages and systematic theology and church history and world Christianity classes. Like I just loved every bit of it. And it was actually at the end of my MDiv program, again, through a set of circumstances that the Jewish piece started to come back up. So I had huh. essentially sort of left the Jewish piece behind and just kind of gone into the Christian world and sort of bounced around denominationally. Um, and then it, it, again, through a set of circumstances, it became clear to me that like, wait, I have left a really key piece of my identity okay. behind. And so then I began my doctoral program at Fuller Seminary back in California. And that question of like, how do I follow Jesus as a Jew became the central question in my, the sort of season of my life of doctoral studies, but also in my doctoral program itself. So I ended up writing my dissertation, which, which was then published as my first book called Healing the Schism. Ah. Um, as just, it was like this structured way for me to work out all these questions that I was wrestling with. And so the book focuses on kind of 20th and 21st century 
developments in Jewish Christian dialogue and relations and what that looks like. We live in this really remarkable era in terms of rethinking the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. And then it was like, I was really hooked. And that has just sort of been both my personal and vocational trajectory ever since is kind of living somewhere in between the mainstream Jewish world, the broader Christian world, and trying to figure out um, what it means to have a foot in both worlds, which uh, have since long since kind of divorced themselves from one another. Right. Okay. That was a beautiful roadmap. So we're going to follow that roadmap because there's a few experiences I want to dive into uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I want, I want our friends, I want you to hear these, but also um, I don't get to hear them very often. Right. And so uh, I, you know, a lot of times, and I, I appreciate this. I love my evangelical friends who grew up that way, but I don't get to hear uh, a, a Jewish person who grows up that way finding Jesus very often. So I want to dive into a couple of things if that's, sure. if that's okay. So yeah. growing up, what, so you, you described it as kind of your, your mom was sort of agnostic, but the, mm -hmm. so culturally Jewish. And so she's doing all these things, right? Like mm -hmm. that you just do. Mm -hmm. And so one, I think one of the things that my evangelical friends would go, it doesn't feel meaningless. Did it feel meaningless or what? Tell me about that sense of like cultural mm -hmm. value was mm -hmm. for you growing up. Yeah, it's a great question. And again, it is such a strange thing, especially I think for evangelical Christians to think about. I think it's not so strange for like maybe Catholics to think about because there's a mm -hmm. whole sort of Catholic culture that goes along with that, that, that might be wedded to faith in some ways, but not necessarily. Um, and so I, the, the, they, they were meaningful practices for me. So for example, we did a Passover Seder every year, kind of reliving the Jewish people's, um, you know, being freed from slavery in Egypt. Uh, we celebrated Hanukkah each year where you we kind of reenact uh, and retell the story of the Maccabees who sort of rise up against the Greeks who are oppressing, you know, the Jewish people. Um, and so there was a very strong sense of peoplehood and a strong mm -hmm. sense of like, this is the story of our ancestors and therefore it informs our story. It informs our identity in ways that I think were pretty significant, even though um, they weren't really closely tied to like faith in God or like God as our rescuer. Um, but it was more of like a, I almost want to say family identity. I mean, Jew Judaism mm -hmm. uh, is like a family culture. Like this is the, it, it's like a family of Jews who goes way back to, you know, Abraham and Moses. And, um, and so it was meaningful to me. Of course, it's become much more meaningful over the years as I have increasingly, um, incorporated the faith and God component with that. Um, I would say what, what was the biggest loss for me as a child is that we didn't have any Jewish community. So Judaism wow. is always kind of based in the home. Um, but it's also ideally kind of buttressed by a larger Jewish community. And that was what we didn't have which I also think probably shaped me in really um, unique ways. But, but, but to answer your question of like, did it feel hollow? I think that the ways in which it would have rung hollow was that we didn't have like friends or cousins or, you know, whoever else to celebrate these things with, but they actually were pretty meaningful to me in terms of, as I said, peoplehood, cultural, yeah. um, sort of ethnic. It, it's very difficult to describe what the Jewish people is because it's like sort of crosses all the categories. Right. But in terms of my identity as a Jewish person, they were still really significant. 
Yeah. Right. Okay. And that's what I want our friends to hear, right? Is that there's, there's a lot of value mm. to that. I hear a lot of um, historical roots, right? A lot of, a lot of mm. grounding that, um, okay. I'm just going to, I'm going to call it out friends. So as an evangelical, I thought the church started in the 1500s, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that, which is very common. Mm-hmm. We yes. often, our church history doesn't even go, barely goes that far all, very often. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the case, right? That God's, the story of God's people actually goes far further mm-hmm. back. And so mm-hmm. you, you have that. So did that, did you always feel sort of grounded to and connected to, to the past in a way? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that that's another kind of, trademark or touchstone of Judaism. I, I've, I've sort of remarked with other Jewish friends that if you ask, um, a, like, let's say a Jewish follower of Jesus, like myself, if you ask them to tell their story, they never start with themselves. They always start with, well, my grandparents were this, and then my parents were this. And so there's this very clear sense of sort of generational inheritance and generational identity that is just built in to Judaism as a religion and as a self-understanding. I mean, think about like the genealogies in the Bible, which we sort of read through and they're so boring and like, who cares? But it's a very Jewish thing to think about like, who were our ancestors and how does their experiences and lives impact our own identities? There you go. If you're bored by the genealogies, you're not thinking Jewishly enough to read the Bible. Stop it. Go, Go figure it out. Understand what that's about. I love it. Okay. So that was really fascinating to me. I thought it was really interesting that you kind of went to college and then now you're suddenly surrounded by, by Christians, which who maybe you haven't encountered a lot before it mm-hmm. sounds like. Mm-hmm. And the way you put that was you encountered the person of Jesus, like for the first mm-hmm. time. So mm-hmm. you said that was a longer story. I'd love to hear that. Like, give me, give me mm-hmm. a little detail on what happened there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, sort of in the, in the kind of classic, like set up for a joke, like my best friend growing up was actually Catholic. So you have me like a Jew and the Catholic. <laughs> um, and I actually remember going to Catholic church with her, but it never, um, it never meant anything to me. And I think it's because I never knew who Jesus was. Like, I just knew that like I was Jewish and my friend is Catholic and she goes to this place called church. And sometimes I go with her, but I never like heard the gospel. Like I never encountered the person of Jesus. Um, until college in these different Mm. settings. Like I said, Campus Crusade, as it was called then, um, a church. I ended up uh, in a vineyard church plant, actually, that was in my college town that was hugely influential on my spiritual life and development. But just the idea of this God who became man, who cares so intimately about me and my life and my struggles and my future and, and, and really, and again, contrasting this to my upbringing where there wasn't a lot of spiritual or religious community to speak of, seeing in the lives of my friends uh, who were all like evangelical Christians, I mean, literally almost every friend I had in college was an evangelical Christian, and just seeing the difference that it made in their lives to have this faith in Christ and for it to be the center of their lives and the center of how they thought about their lives and how they thought about their futures, how they thought about their priorities, that was just so striking to me. Um, and maybe it did highlight the way in which my upbringing with all of its sort of Jewish trappings, which were meaningful to me, did not have that. I wasn't, um, I, I wouldn't say that I was sort of rooted or grounded in the same way that they were. I was much more kind of tossed about this way and that way. I was very anxious about my future and um, you know, what would that look like? And, and, and who would I marry? And what would I do? For, like, I was just kind of an anxious college kid. 
And I just noticed that my friends had such a rooting and an anchoring that I learned had everything to do with their faith in Christ. Yeah. Really interesting. So, okay. So that, that was it, but was there a time, like, did you have to have, did you have a come, like, when did you decide like, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus? Cause I'm assuming that probably had some family dynamics to it as well. Interestingly, it didn't have family dynamics until afterwards. So okay. um, I did, I sort of had the moment, like I remember it was a Sunday morning and of all things, my car had gotten towed the night before. And oh, so no. it was kind of like dealing with this car, like at some towing yard and I had to pay money. And, and I remember going to church that day. It was like a really, really cloudy day. And, um, and I just felt, I felt overwhelmed. And I think maybe there was practical reasons for that, but also probably spiritual reasons for that. I'm sitting down with the pastor of the vineyard church that I was attending at the time. Um, and I just, I don't even really remember the content of the conversation, to be honest. But all I remember is that he, he said, go read John 15 through 17 today. And so I think I like worked out the car thing. I got the car back. I paid the $250. I went to the beach and it was this like really cloudy, blustery day. And I sat down and I read John 15 through 17. And it's just this language about like abiding, like abide in me, you know, this language about the, the, the vine and the branches, um, just such powerful language about being number one, sort of connected to God and to Christ. Um, but also this, this sense of yielding, like yielding myself to this to this God who cares so much about all the things that I was like this, you know, 21 year old, like freaking out about. And so that was my moment. That was my moment of like, okay, like I'm yielding, like I'm abiding. And that's what, but that's what I'm going to do. That's that it, it was this, like, again, I, I sort of struggle with words to describe it. Um, yeah. but that was my moment and, and it had, and it, and it happened this day, this cloudy day at the beach in college as I was nearing graduation, which kind of heightened all the like anxiety that I had, but also the sense of like, what do I do next and where am I headed? And it, and it really, um, proved to be like a compass, um, certainly for my life ever since then. Yeah. love that. What were the, were there family consequences there? Okay. So that's a great question. Um, I mean, my story is very atypical in terms of Jews who follow Jesus in, in the much more common story is that it does lead to some kind of family breach. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in Judaism, you say Kaddish, which is like a special prayer, the mourners Kaddish for those who've died. And I can't tell you how many friends I have whose parents like said Kaddish for them when they became believers in wow. Jesus. Like they, it's like they were dead to their parents, which has everything to do with the history between Judaism and Christianity, the, the hostility between Judaism and Christianity, this ongoing streak of Christian anti-Judaism uh, that a lot of Christians don't talk about. Um, and so it's funny, you, you said you, you think, you know, that a lot of evangelicals say, well, the, the church began in the Reformation. And when I think of the Reformation, I think of Martin Luther, who was like this raging anti-Semite and yes. nobody knows about that. And nobody talks about that. We should. Um, and like Hitler drew directly from Martin Luther. So when you look at history from a Jewish lens, Christianity is the enemy. Christianity is dangerous. Christianity and Christian theology have been a huge problem for the Jewish people over the years, which is why it's like the worst thing ever in a Jewish family if your kid becomes wow. a follower of Jesus. But that wasn't my story. So um, 
I guess to sort of fill in some of the gaps, my, I have one brother and he was at the same college as me at the same time as me. And he was also kind of undergoing this spiritual journey and, and process. And so he and I kind of became followers of Jesus around the same time. So we were like united in this new Mm. thing. And we like sat at the dinner table with our parents one year, right around Thanksgiving and like had to tell them that like, we believe in Jesus. And Um, and my mom was a bit distraught. She was the one who had always had closer ties to Judaism. Judaism had always been more meaningful to her. And she just felt this sense of guilt. Like what, what did I do wrong? I didn't instill Judaism deeply enough. in my children, they've like gone wayward. Um, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it betrayal, but it was sort of this like, oh my gosh, what, what did I do wrong? And my dad who had never been as strongly connected to Judaism, was he, what he said to me was, you know, I always saw it as my job to give you and your brother a spiritual foundation. And I always knew that you would build on top of it. I just never knew what that would look like. So he was much more open-minded from the beginning. Um, and it's funny, the pastor of the vineyard church that I was attending in college gave me a book, um, that's written by Stan Telchin, who is a messianic Jew. And the book is called betrayed. And the subtitle is what to do when you're 55 Jewish and successful and your 21 year old daughter tells you that she believes in Jesus. So it was like our story, right? Wow. And, uh, and my dad read it, uh, kind of just to, 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 to tear it apart, essentially to be like, this is bogus, you know? And it was like a really significant step in his own journey. And he ended up becoming a follower of Jesus, like pretty shortly after us, which is like not the way that the story goes. Um, and my mom, her story and her journey has been much more kind of complex and she's more of a wrestler and she, you know, she's the one who would be in the women's Bible studies years later, like always raising the questions and, um, you know, not, not having enough faith and, 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 you know, whatever, however that got construed, but, but long story short, both of my parents are also now followers of Jesus, Messianic Jews, however we would identify that. So our whole immediate family is, which is amazing and totally not normal in terms of how these stories generally go. And it has been to different extents, an issue with extended family members, with my parents, siblings, um, with their parents, when their parents were still alive, Um, But in terms of our like nuclear family, it like remarkably has been something that we've all, it's looked different for each of us over the years, Um, but we've all been on the same page on, which is just such a gift. And in some ways I see it as kind of a miracle to not have to deal with the kinds of stories that many of my friends have had to deal with in that regard. Yeah. That sounds kind of like an amazing story. That's, that's Mm -hmm. kind of a a special gift perhaps. Yeah. I, I, like I certainly have experienced it that way. Wow. Okay. So then the other thing that you said that I thought was really fascinating and I wanted to ask you about is that basically then you end up going to seminary and this is where you like, I call this season like learning the way of Jesus, right? You mm-hmm. were like soaking in all the scripture that, mm-hmm. you know, even though you knew kind of what you had learned as a, as a kid, you're like, okay, let's take in the, the new Testament and the rest, mm-hmm. the rest of it. Right. So, Tell me about that and tell me about what were some of the significant things that you learned that kind of furthered your relationship with the Lord? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that my seminary chapter had sort of two, two sub chapters, right? There was the MDiv chapter, which where mm-hmm. I was just like so new to all of it. I mean, I took, I took a year before I went to Yale and I like read through the whole Bible, which I had never done. And I like read every single book I could get my hands on. 
And Yale was a really interesting place. And, and a lot of my like sort of vineyard friends and even the pastor of the vineyard yeah. church that I was attending in college, like really cautioned me, like, do not go to Yale. It's like too liberal. Like you're going to lose your faith, which you just barely found, you know? Um, and I just felt this, uh, this draw to Yale. Like it's one of the, it's one of the few times in my life where I actually would say like, I kind of felt like God was calling me to go to Yale. Um, and it became this really fascinating experience where rather than me sort of losing this newfound faith that I had just built in college, um, it actually strengthened it because it drew a line in the sand between theology that I ultimately found to be untenable. Um, for example, one of the New Testament professors at Yale, like didn't believe in the resurrection yet. She was like this New Testament professor teaching seminary students. Why? And it just, yes, exactly. And it, and it sort of, <laughs> It's sort of, like I said, it made, it made me see what was at stake and where we come down on fundamental issues. Wow. And there was a smaller group of both students and faculty at Yale who were evangelical. And it was, it became just this like um, seminal community for me for, to see these evangelical professors at Yale who, you know, at Yale, it was more like evangelicalism is like a stage in one's Christian development. Like, oh, you're still an evangelical. Like you haven't realized <laughs> that all of that is, is kind of ridiculous, yeah. but to see these like really well-respected professors, people like Miroslav Volf, if that name means anything yeah. to like, you know, you and your listeners and, um, Laman Sane, who is this incredible, um, I'm actually reading his memoir right now, and it's just so amazing. Uh, just these professors uh, and John Hare, who was like a you know philosophical theologian, like just these really well-respected professors who like held on so tightly to their evangelical faith. As I said, I just saw more of what was at stake in not um, sort of crossing the line over into this kind of liberal, wishy-washy theology that there was also plenty of that going on at Yale. And so if anything, it kind of taught me the fault lines of like, oh, that's what liberal Christianity looks like. And that's kind of where it leads in some ways. And this is why my highly, highly educated professors are still claiming themselves to be in this evangelical camp. And um, so again, it was such a, it was such an amazing experience for me because I, I got more of a kind of a broad exposure to Christianity mm -hmm. rather than like Vineyard and Campus Crusade, which was my college experience. Yep. And it made me more committed to certain claims that I just understood in a new way, why they were so central to, to yeah. Christian faith. Isn't that interesting? So maybe they were challenged and you were like, okay, but not that this, right? So mm -hmm. yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. That, and yeah. Well, so I, I think there's a comment about the, in there about what happens when we do challenge our faith. I've been really, mm -hmm. so one of the reasons I started this show is because I wanted to tell a story to, I want to say to people that you're, that the spiritual journey, the life with God is longer, deeper and wider than you've been mm -hmm. told. Right. Like when I was a kid, mm -hmm. it was, you know, my life was terrible. Then I met Jesus and now my life is great, which is mm -hmm. true. Except for all mm -hmm. the other things that happened. Right. Right. So, so there's, a, there's more to that story and God's people know that. Right. It's mm -hmm. just that the tradition I'd grown up, we didn't talk about it. We just mm -hmm. pretended like it didn't exist. So I want people to see that. Um, but, but that, what that means is you have to ask a lot of questions, right? Mm -hmm. You have to ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. and question a lot of your assumptions. Mm -hmm. And to, in order to find out, as you say, what's at stake, which I think is mm -hmm. really well put. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, I think that's really good. And I, I find that fascinating that that's what, what your experience was. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so then you, you do that where, so did you have a sense of like, God was with you in that season? Was it, mm-hmm. was it just seemed like really, I don't, I don't know. You tell me what was that like? Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, you know, it's kind of this joke that like, before you enter seminary, you think seminary is going to be this like three year spiritual high. And then you uh-huh. get into seminary and it's all about uh-huh. like deconstruction <laughs> and like, oh my gosh, like JEDP and like source theory and all these things, yep. you know? Um, and, and yet, I mean, my Yale experience was more of like the kind of like the three year spiritual high. I mean, my doctoral program, uh, I would say was, was rockier for me in terms of the wrestling and the questioning, Mm. which ended up being hugely fruitful in the end, as I think all wrestling and struggling always is. Um, but my Yale years, I really do look back at them as just a really sweet time. Again, for me as like a pretty new believer in Jesus, um, And I can see why my vineyard pastor would have cautioned me, like, don't go there. It's like throwing the lamb to the wolves. You're not going to have, you know, and that just wasn't my experience. I had a really amazing community of friends. And like I said, these evangelical professors who I I became um, like a co-leader of the evangelical fellowship, which is like a student group at Yale Divinity School. And also, you know, Yale undergrads would come and Yale law school students would come. Um, and, And it just became this really sweet community where I felt in a weird way, like kind of sheltered from all the stuff that my like vineyard pastor had cautioned me against. Um, And so it was like, in some ways, because I became a follower of Jesus at the very end of my undergraduate years, it was like the, this experience of like Christian community for the, for the first time in like this extended Mm -hmm. way. And Um, again, also sort of broadening my horizons. Like all I had ever known as an undergrad was this vineyard church and, and, and these parachurch, you know, campus ministries. Um, but I like ended up in an Episcopal church at Yale. And I just was like, this is so amazing. And like, look at the liturgy and the, the history and this big stone building. And it was just, it was just amazing. Like, I think I was, um, I was just kind of in awe of all of it. And I would say that my, as I've sort of alluded to my deep wrestling, theologically and otherwise didn't really come up until I was already in my PhD program. So Mm. that was more the like, wow, this is incredible. I get to like sit around all day and like read Karl Barth, this like amazing theologian, (laughs) learn biblical Hebrew and, you know, learn, learn about world Christianity from this expert in the whole world, Laman Sane, who's like from Africa and has this incredible journey. And so it was more just like this time of wonder um, that, 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 that got a little, more kind of winding later, actually. Interesting. Did you already have a little Hebrew? Um, uh, just a tiny bit, actually. So because we never had a Jewish community growing up, I was never like okay. bat mitzvah, which is the rite of passage ceremony for like 12-year-old girls, 13-year-old boys. I had never had that because we didn't have like a synagogue community that we were a part of. And my parents just like never did that. So I had not a lick of biblical Hebrew until I was in college and had already become a follower of Jesus okay. and started taking like a biblical Hebrew class through a different church. Um, so no, it was really at Yale where I was like digging in, new. like translating the passages, you know, all the, all the stuff. I was, one, I was wondering if it was easier for you than it was for me. It was so it was hard. Not. I, had to, I had to take like three years of Greek and it took Greek three times to like really finally study down my own, to like figure it out. Uh-huh. And then doing Hebrew was so hard. Like it was just, it's a whole different way of thinking about language, right? It's mm-hmm. just a different, 
yeah. approach. It was tough. So anyway, I was wondering how that was. It's so you. funny. I have little kids now. I know we haven't gotten to that part of the story yet, but like they never know which way to open a book, right? Because Hebrew <laughs> is like right to left. So they'll pick up their right. like English book and they'll open it from the back. I'm like, no, 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 this is English. Like we open the book this way. Like it's very different and very confusing. It's You're not alone. hundred percent. Really fascinating. Okay. So you, you alluded to this, your kind of seminary wrestling. What was it that made you start kind of wrestling mm-hmm. with that? What, what happened? Yeah, so it's um, it's it's an interesting story. So I have a, of a first cousin named Rachel, um, and she was living in New York City at the time when I was in New Haven, Connecticut at Yale. And we had never been particularly close, but there was just this like moment in time. It was like a season uh, of, of a couple of years probably where she was in New York and I was in New Haven. And so we lived, you know, an hour train ride apart from each other. And she, her father, um, was Jewish and her mother was not Jewish. And so according to sort of Orthodox Jewish reckoning, like you are Jewish if your mother is Jewish. And so she was not considered Jewish by, you know, the Orthodox Jewish community. And she had always felt this very close connection to Judaism and to my like very, very Jewish mother. And so she was in the process in New York City of undergoing Orthodox conversion to Orthodox Judaism, which is like this year and a half process where you study with a rabbi and you slowly take on like this Orthodox Jewish lifestyle. Um, And here I am at like seminary at Yale Divinity School, like reading Christian theology all day. And we would get together like probably once a month at her apartment in New York or my apartment in New Haven. And we would just share about these really rich seasons that each of us were in. And for her coming to Judaism was really like coming to faith. She had not grown up in a household where there was any kind of faith. And she was like falling in love with God as she was like beginning to lead this Orthodox Jewish lifestyle. And I was like, whoa, like I had not... Um, again, because Judaism was something that took place in my family growing up and not with the wider community, I had never experienced that kind of Judaism that she was wading Mm -hmm. into. And it just became this kind of catalyst in my life for me to say, I, I kind of want what she has. Like I, like that's, that runs in my veins too. This like Jewish history and Jewish tradition and Jewish practice. Um, and I don't know anything about that. And, And here she is. Uh, like just like soaking up all the richness of Jewish tradition and Jewish life. And I, and I don't, I don't know anything about that. And so my relationship with her over, you know, this year, year and a half or two years, however long it was when I was at Yale um, was, it really raised all these new questions for me of like, wait a second, like, am I a Christian? But like, if I'm a Christian, then how am I also a Jew? And like, what do I do with that? And, and for the first Mm -hmm. time in my life, I started thinking like, is it important that I marry someone who's Jewish? Like what? I've never thought about that before. So it raised this whole new set of questions. It, I would say amidst kind of this uh, increasingly strong foundation in Christian faith, it raised all these Jewish questions that I had kind of just put on the shelf since college because like, I didn't know what to do with that. And I didn't know any other Jewish followers of Jesus. And I had no idea how to put those pieces together And so those were the whole sort of set of questions that came up towards the very end of my MDiv program. Yeah, that so that's quite the uh, quite the experience, right? So it sounds Mm. like that might have been challenging. How'd you resolve it? What happened? Well, stay tuned. Like I'm still working on it. Like my 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 book, Finding Messiah, my latest book is is kind of the story of me trying to resolve it. It sort of picks up almost exactly where I just left off at Yale and tells the rest of the story, which I would say is still 
completely ongoing. Like I have not, um, I do not have all the answers, but I have kind of like what you said earlier, I have learned the value of sitting with the tensions and not mm. feeling as though faith is about having all the answers. Like if anything, faith is about asking the right questions and being comfortable not having the answers and not having to have everything in these kind of neat sealed off boxes, which, um, which it can become that, right? I mean, sometimes faith seems like we have to know all the answers. And I would say that my kind of journey since then has been embracing the questions, embracing mm. the tensions, like sitting with them, allowing myself to feel within my body, the history between Judaism and Christianity and the hostility between Judaism and Christianity and the way in which like, if you mention the Holocaust to most Jews, they think it was like a Christian phenomenon. They're like, yeah, Hitler Ugh. was a Christian, you know, like Ugh. this is the kind of history that again, I don't think is talked about often enough in Christian circles and in churches, but that is all too real. And so like, what do we do with that? You know, I mean, this has been, as I've said, my journey ever since both professionally, uh, vocationally, um, in terms of what I've written about and, and very closely connected to my own personal story of um, my identity and how it kind of connects up to these various communities that have been divorced from one another and hostile to one another for centuries. Yeah, man. Okay. So I have so many thoughts. Uh, what, one is I keep thinking about what I love about um like, and I, I forget the exact thing, so you can correct me, feel free. But Israel doesn't, when when Jacob gets that name, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that, mm -hmm. doesn't that mean wrestle, one who wrestles yes. with God, something like yes. that? And I think that's really important to like hold on mm -hmm. to for us evangelicals mm -hmm. uh, because it, we are tempted so often, like, no, we just have to have the right answers. I think fundamentalism, mm -hmm. American fundamentalism in the last hundred years, is mm -hmm. a huge detriment to that. Mm -hmm. Um and I don't think it's all Christians everywhere at all times. It's just us right now that we, mm -hmm. we don't like to, we mm -hmm. want to have all the answers and we think we have to have our apologist be able to explain everything mm -hmm. instead of being willing to wrestle with God. Like, I think that's what mm -hmm. God wants from us is not mm -hmm. to know everything, but to know him. Yes. Those two are completely different. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I sort of alluded a little bit to my mom's experience and my parents have ended up connected to it, to a non-denominational evangelical, wonderful, wonderful church. But you know, she's been in Bible studies where, um, the women are like, you ask too many questions. Like you just need to have faith. Like as though those are mutually exclusive categories, right? right? Like if you ask questions, that means it's a lack of faith. And my mom's like this super Jewish, she's like a very Jewish woman. Like, no, like, I don't understand what is the text saying? And if we're honest, like, do we, do, does everybody understand every single verse of the Bible? Like, no way it's so complex and it's so strange. And there's these passages that just seem wrong or weird or, you know, and so there's such a, I think there's a real humility in mm. saying, I don't know, like, I don't know, but let's talk about that. Like, let's figure this out together. And yet there's this knee jerk reaction in many evangelical Christian circles against that kind of wrestling, which for a Jewish person like myself or my mom, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, that's what we do. We wrestle with God. Like we yell at God, like read, you know, David in the Psalms, yes. or, you know, um, and, and then you want to talk about like post Holocaust Judaism, like, man, is there some dark stuff in there? Um, like Ellie Wiesel, you know, there's, there's, there's these amazing conversations recorded with Ellie Wiesel just about him. And like, how do you have faith after you're like in Auschwitz as a five-year-old, oh, right? you know? Um, and so there's just this real kind of raw, 
wrestling that is so at home in Judaism and Jewish tradition and culture that just evangelicalism just doesn't really always know what to do with that. Well, I think, I think we often want our faith tied up with a nice bow, right? Mm -hmm. We we're we're Mm -hmm. willing to tolerate the cross once a year, Mm -hmm. um, but we want the the resurrection and the rest of it, Mm -hmm. the rest of the time. And Mm -hmm. that we think means we have to have all the answers and I just don't think that's how life is. And I don't mm-hmm. think that's what God wants for us, right? We have to, mm-hmm. we have to, we have to be willing to wrestle with him. That's why mm-hmm. I go back all the time. I talk about it too much on here, but Habakkuk, like I love the way mm-hmm. he wrestles with God and mm-hmm. goes back and forth. And you mentioned David and Job. I mean, all these places. Yeah. God is not critical of those who are willing to ask him questions. Yes. He's yes. often willing to show up and step into that, which mm-hmm. I really love. Yeah, if I can just piggyback on that for one minute, you know, you mentioned like Easter, like we, oh, we kind of tolerate the cross, like Good Friday, like, oh, and then we get to Easter and it's like, yay, let's live in Easter for another year, you know? Right. And I, I recently had an article in Christianity Today that is actually an excerpt from the book that is talking about how Easter, you know, got separated from Passover in a way that I, that was very political as we talk about sort of these, these different twists and turns of church history. I mean, Jesus's life was very intentionally patterned after a Jewish calendar, Jewish rhythms. And what church history does is it slowly kind of erases all of those connections such that after the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, mm-hmm. Easter and Passover are officially separated so that it's only like this calendrical coincidence if they overlap as they do this year, as they did this year. Um, and so I think that in that separation, you end up, Christian tradition, it, 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 it all too often falls into this trap of sort of parsing life and death. Like Friday is like the cross, but then the rest is resurrection. And like, we sort of separate those things. And like, uh, and, and that leads to all kinds of interesting theological conclusions that if you walk through the Passover narrative in Judaism, yes. life and death are much more closely intertwined and inseparable. And, yeah. and, and when, we, when we walk through a Passover Seder each year, Um, we are reliving life and deliverance and rescue and salvation. And Mm -hmm. we are reliving death and destruction and loss and grief and disorientation. And they are just absolutely wedded together. Um, Again, in a way that I think Christianity for all these different reasons, historically and theologically wants to kind of parse those things out, which ends up being kind of alienating, right? Like to say, well, we're done with death because Jesus conquered death on the cross. Like, but that's not our experience, is it? Like we still deal with death and loss and grief like every day of our lives. And in my opinion, there has to be theological resources to do that. Uh, And all too often, um, I don't know. I don't feel like the church has those conversations enough of like, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but you know, there's still like real life. And how do we make sense of the tensions and the losses and the trauma uh, in light of that. Yeah. What's that already and not yet, right. Mm -hmm. That we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there, there is hope because Mm -hmm. we have the, the already of what Christ has accomplished Mm -hmm. and how he has conquered death through death, but we're still in that time where we, Mm -hmm. we still experience and we have to mourn and we have to go through it. And he understands all that because he Mm -hmm. experienced it all. Um, Yes. You know, one thing about the Passover and I don't, people probably don't do this now, but think about the way they, they, like Jesus would have, would have done that. And part of what they do or used to do, I understand 
right? Is you bring a lamb into your home, right? Mm. And you would name it and you would mm. pet it and you it would be around and then you would sacrifice it. Mm -hmm. Talk about understanding the closeness of life mm -hmm. and death mm -hmm. and watching and understanding all of that. That's a very physical way mm -hmm. of understanding, you know, and, and having to reconcile with God over these things. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I think also brings up um, a point about the sort of embodied nature of Judaism. Mm -hmm. Like Judaism is all about what we do with our bodies, what we don't do with our bodies. When you think back to the sacrificial system, like, man, like slaughtering animals, like there's just this real tangible kind of grittiness about it. Uh, where it's sort of taken out of this ethereal spiritual realm and brought into like everyday, like purity and holiness are these really, really tangible qualities in Judaism that I think adds a lot to Christian faith when we understand that. And when we're able to kind of push back against this, um, really, it's like this dualism of saying, well, there's this spiritual yes. world, and then there's this physical world, and they're sort of separate, and we need to sort of transcend physicality. Again, right. Judaism just has a totally different story to tell about those categories. Yes, which is Plato and Gnosticism, yes. not our yes. faith. It's not biblical, and that's yes. that's an issue. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. I've been saying it for years. <laughs> makes makes me crazy. Um, so 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 true. Okay, um, that's really fascinating. So the book is Finding Messiah: A Journey into the Jewishness of the gospel. Like, mm -hmm. so you, so this is where you, you said it kind of picked up and you're, you're moving in that direction and mm -hmm. kind of understand that what's something that surprised you about the gospel. Maybe it's something we talked about, maybe it's something new, but about as you, as you started to connect it with your heritage, what was something that you went, mm -hmm. Oh man, wow. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, so, so there's sort of a couple of different ways I can answer that question. It has surprised me over the years, how disconnected the Christian gospel has become from God's covenant with Israel. Like that just, I cannot get over that, you know? Um, and I think it has to do with all these other pieces that we're talking about. I think that um, in most like gospel presentations that I've ever heard in my life, whether it's in church or wherever that might be, they do not, the, God's covenant with Israel does not generally feature prominently in our understanding of Jesus. Like, I think this is why people like Andy Stanley can just say like, well, let's just unhitch the old Testament. Like it doesn't like, that's something different. Right. We don't really need that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We need it. We need all of it. You know, because it's this one story that I think we need all of the context of to understand the gospel. And that's really the central claim in the book is that like, and, 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 and to see what happens when we divorce the Christian gospel from God's covenant with Israel. So for example, you end up with, as we were just talking about this very spiritualized gospel, whereby believing in Jesus means going to heaven when you die. Like that's, right. I think a lot of people would say like, that's the gospel that we get to like have this eternal life when we die with Jesus. Like, okay, well, that's certainly part of it is like this eternal hope. Like, yes, absolutely. Like our resurrection hinges on his resurrection. And there is this eternal life piece, but like, I don't think that's the whole story. Like, I don't think that it's just hanging on until we die and like are, are brought into glory. Like, I think we're missing a lot of like the commission as Jesus disciples, whereby we are called to like sanctify the world around us and be a light. And so I think, um, I think I just continue to be surprised all the time at the way in which the gospel gets told with no reference to these other like central biblical categories 
that I think we need in order to actually understand the gospel. Yes. Yes. And amen. Okay. You're speaking my language. I love it. So one of the things that surprised me, because I, I went to, I, I grew up evangelical. I went to Trinity for mm-hmm. and did biblical studies for my undergrad. And then I, I, I always say I went to college to learn how to study the Bible and seminary to learn how to pray, right? Because those are the, uh-huh. the only two evangelical uh, sacraments that we are practices uh-huh. that we give. Uh, but the, what I learned there as I'm studying scripture, I study a lot of Old Testament and the, there's these certain inflection points, right? Where mm-hmm. like we just forget them because we're upset that, you know, about, you know, the Israelites killing everybody or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, there's, and there's a lot we have to wrestle with. I think we have to wrestle mm-hmm. with. But we also have to look at, okay, Genesis 12 and 15. Mm-hmm. And the and is it Second Samuel 7, the covenant, the Davidic covenant? And like all of that, like we, we need to remember that those things are mm-hmm. there and understand mm-hmm. what God's doing. And the fact that, yes, there, the, I think we paper over that and we like, and think that, okay, Israel was only this thing for, a time, but God is still mm-hmm. going to be faithful to his covenant, mm-hmm. right? Which I think mm-hmm. Romans, you know, and there Paul's getting at, but mm-hmm. that's all really, really important. And once you, once you understand it and you put your faith in that context, you suddenly have this picture of not just, oh, Jesus died and now I get to live with God, but this is a, this is what God's always been doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm part of this bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I write about a lot uh, in, in Finding Messiah and other places is what's called Christian supersessionism, which is yes. just a fancy word for like replacement theology that I think, I don't think Christians have evil intentions when, when they sort of subtly imbibe the notion that like, well, Israel, that kind of was God's covenant people. And now it's the church. Like there's yes. this, there's this language again, very subtle in some cases that like, somehow election has been transferred from the Jewish people to the church. And the language is actually super explicit in, in places like the church fathers, where they like basically just say that flat out. Yep. And for people like, you know, you can sort of trace the history throughout. Again, we, we've mentioned Martin Luther and the awful things that he has to say about the Jewish people. And so I think that um, to sort of pit that pit those elections against one another, number one, we miss the bigger story. It's one story. And the New Testament is all about God's covenant with the people of Israel now being open to the Gentiles through Jesus. This is like shocking to the apostles in the book of Acts. Like they did not see this coming. And we miss that if we read it through this kind of replacement theology lens. And I think what we also miss is that that really paints a very problematic portrait of God's faithfulness if he can somehow like divorce this first covenant people group like for whatever reason as it gets construed in different Christian theological formulations like oh Israel was sinful and so then God kind of let them go or they were just meant to like play this one little part in the story like that's a real problem if this is the God that then Christians are hoping is going to be faithful to this covenant you know what I'm saying like God's faithfulness is on the line here. And if he's not faithful to his covenant with the people of Israel, then that's a real problem for Christian faith, isn't it? Yeah. So it's more than even, so I agree. I, I, oh, I have so many thoughts. I have so many thoughts, Jen. So what, one, one was, yes, I, the apostles were surprised, but why were they surprised? I don't want, that was a, that was a whole, mm. that was a whole thing on, on the Jews part um, where they, they had not, kind of overlooked what, what, what I think the meaning of what 
the Abrahamic covenant, right? Was mm. was because God says in there, this is for all people, but I'm choosing you, right? So I don't know, maybe you have a different take on that. I'd love to hear it, but that that's that's one interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the gospels don't often mention Gentile inclusion. I mean, Jesus is saying, like, yeah. I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Like, there's a lot of Israel-centric language in the gospels. I think Acts is the real place where we see. And I mean, you think about Peter's dream in Acts 10, like right. he is. And, and I think ultimately, if we look at Peter's interpretation of the dream in Acts 15 and Acts 11, it doesn't actually have to do with food. It has to do with Gentiles. That's how right. Peter interprets the dream. And they are shocked that the that the spirit has come on Gentiles in the same way that the spirit came upon Jews in Acts 2. And that's like the final, like indisputable proof that God is now like working and accepting the Gentiles as they are. And I think this is what sort of the rest of the book of Acts and, and the rest of the New Testament is trying to work out. Like, what do we do? Okay, Jews, like Judaism's always had diversity and there's like tensions between different rabbis and different camps, but like there's kind of this like Jewish God's covenant with the, with the people of Israel. And in the New Testament, it's kind of like, wait a second, now this covenant is being opened to Gentiles. And what does that mean? Like how do Jews and Gentiles together worship the God of Israel, which I would say is a central question throughout the New Testament, even though it's not often read that way. And that's actually a key marker of the body of Messiah is that this hostility that we see all throughout the Old Testament between Israel and the nations, right? The nations in the Old Testament are like the ones who worship idols and they're always like dragging Israel away from worship of the one true God. And they're like fighting with Israel for the land. And what we have in Jesus is like a reconciliation between Israel and the nations. Now, everybody, as you say, this has been alluded to since Genesis throughout the prophetic literature, we see kind of uh, you know, a light to the nations, uh, the, you know, that the, the Gentiles will grab onto the like seat of the Jews um, and say, take me to your God. Like, that's what we see in the New Testament is this reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the nations now serving God together. Like, that's the big deal. Um, or at least one of the big deals about the gospel that, again, I think gets missed if we sort of extracted from this larger context of God's ongoing never-ending covenant with the people of Israel. Mm. All right. I'm going to pick up on that, the re- the reconciliation, that whole thing. That's probably a, something that we need to dive into more and it, as, as a people, right? As, a, as just a group mm-hmm. of people, like, let's think about what that means. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced that maturity in Christ means love, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think those are all mixed up together somehow. Okay. Well, that's really mm-hmm. fascinating. Uh, again, the book is Finding Messiah, A Journey into the Jewishness of the Gospel. Jen, I could talk to you about this a long time because it, it's so important. I think it, uh, you know, I thank you for sharing your story, but I think even just some of these conversations about let's rethink, especially our language around mm-hmm. how we think about the gospel, because I think it will help us mature and become mm-hmm. those people who do love and love others the way that Jesus wants us to, Mm -hmm. which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. I love it. Jen, people can find you. Your website is just jenrosner.com, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. They can find you there. Is there anything you want to leave us with? I mean, I I think I would just leave with the kind of reiterating something we've always said, which is like, let's press into the tensions, right? Let's, Mm. let's, let's kind of cultivate. I think it's a discipline, honestly. And I would say even a spiritual discipline to sort of cultivate the, the kind of strength and patience and presence 
to sit with the tensions, whether that's theological or otherwise. Like I think we are as a people, and I would maybe say, especially in Western culture, we're so quick to want to like get out of things that feel uncomfortable or that we can't quite resolve um, as if resolution is like the, the, the prize. And I would say, Again, as we've talked about with the people of Israel, like the people of Israel are a people that struggle with God. And it is kind of through the struggling that revelation comes. And so I guess my encouragement to mm -hmm. listeners would be like, sit with the tensions in your life, sit with the tensions in your theology. Don't skip too quickly to resolution. Don't skip too quickly to Easter Sunday, right? Like sit in the places that feel uncomfortable because I think it's oftentimes and and very much in my own life it's through that struggle that I have come to know God and come to know uh, what it means to journey with God so I mean I guess that's part of my yeah. uh, my story of faith and, and again it very much comes through in the book as well I think the reality is it's most people's story of faith. We just don't like mm. to talk about it, which is why we do the show. So that's great. great. Uh, Jen, I love it. Thank you so much for sharing some of your story again. And uh, friends, again, the book, Finding Messiah, A Journey into the Jewishness of the Gospel. You can get it at Amazon and, uh, or you can go just go to halfwaytherepodcast.com where I always collect all the links, everything you need so that you don't have to remember it. If you're doing the dishes right now, go ahead, just uh, put that in the back of your mind, come back and check it out. Appreciate it. Jen, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me.